So we're in Malachi. Um, the prophecy of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, and I'm going to invite you guys to open there. We're going to actually look today at chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. So I'm now going to read uh, the first couple verses of our section um, through verse 2, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. Malachi 2, starting in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and that he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would come. We pray that your Spirit would do what you promised he would do, that he would guide us into all truth. I pray that your spirit would bring the weight of the glory of God, that we might be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. God, I pray that you'd speak to us as a church, and God, I pray that you'd speak to us as individuals as well. God, you can do that work far, far, far better than I can. So we submit this to you. And just ask for you working in power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, global relations, nation to nation, uh, is being talked about a ton right now. And in reading about that this week, I was reminded of this famous quote by a former president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. And he said this. He said, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Speak softly, carry a big stick, you will go far. Some people know that and they apply it in the boardroom or apply it in the family. Roosevelt was actually speaking about diplomacy. There's now a phrase called big stick diplomacy. And the idea of speak softly is diplomatically, the desire of diplomacy is to be persuasive, to work with somebody, to have conversation. And he's saying speak softly, but also carry a big stick. The big stick would be have the power to actually do something. That could be economic sanctions or military might. He says, if you do both, you speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. Well, the truth is that's the way God has been operating in the book of Malachi. He's been engaging the nation of Israel, speaking with them diplomatically, allowing them to ask questions back to him when he makes a statement. But in the passage we're in today, he shows that he carries a really big stick. Before we get to that passage, it's important that we remind ourselves about this book of Malachi. Malachi's name means messenger, or it could also be translated angel. He himself wasn't an angel, but he was a messenger of God. This is why chapter 1, verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the word of who? 
the Lord, that's God. This is the word of God to Israel. Now that really matters because this whole letter, as is the majority of the Bible, written to the people of God. I'm not certain you're aware of this, but at least two-thirds of the New Testament is written as corrective for the church not living up to its calling, for the church not being the church. Here in Malachi, God is saying to the people of God, you're not living as the people of God. He says to the leaders, the priests, you say, and you hold the title priest, but you're not operating like a priest. And he questions, are you really a priest? Last week, he looks at husbands, and he says, you hold the name husband, but you're not acting like a husband or living in the covenant. And here he begins to speak to the totality of Judea, of Israel, and he says specifically, you aren't living as the people of God. But this letter, though it's written as a corrective, we cannot forget the first words he utters. Besides it being the word of God to Israel through Malachi, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. This whole book is, in fact, a love letter. Some people would speak about it as a song. I was reading in preparation this little Bible study um, that's actually put out by Lexham Press. It's Malachi, and the subtitle is Easy Doesn't Change the World. It's in this series called The Not Your Average Bible Study. And in the introduction, the author is speaking about the book of Malachi as a love letter, a love song. And he says, but God's love songs don't sound like the typical Barney the Purple Dinosaur sings. Now, that reveals age, because in the early 90s, there was this purple dinosaur that would sing these love songs. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. Anybody remember that? Okay, here's what the author's saying. He's saying God's love songs, this letter of love, is not like Barney. God doesn't sing songs of utopia. He says he didn't sing songs of utopia. Utopia wasn't and isn't reality. Utopia was not then reality, and utopia is not now reality. Can I get an amen? Amen. The author goes on. When we witness God's love at work in its rawest form, I love that language, that's why I'm reading this. When we witness, we behold, we see God's love in its rawest form, we often find that it's not what we expect. We're confronted with the weapons of his war on hate and pain. I like that phrase because God will unleash the weapons of his war on hate and on pain. His arsenal includes the ability to cut deep into our hearts and call us to live for him. So when you read the prophets, it's this moment where you're like, strap it on. Because God's cutting deep into the hearts and calling us to live for him. In fact, it's not just the prophets, but it's the epistles in the New Testament, these letters where these statements like conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Malachi to the nation of Israel is no different and the reason he's concerned is because he loves them and he loves the world. 
in the middle of chapter 1, he makes very clear in chapter 1, verse 5, your eyes shall see this, this work of God, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. God's desire and aspiration is always that the totality of the world, all peoples would see how great he really is, not just the nation of Israel. He blessed Israel to be a blessing. But when they don't live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called, because of his love for them and his love for the world, he brings out his raw love. Now, through this section, all the way up to 2.17, God's been engaging Israel and they've been asking questions. He says, I have loved you. And then they go, well, how have you loved us? And then he goes back and forth and he's speaking softly. He's operating what would be called soft power. Isn't that amazing? Just for a minute, stop and think about that for a minute. This is God. Right? I mean, I have these moments with my kids where I'll say to do something and then they want to negotiate with me. And I'm like, I'm dad, you don't negotiate. And I'm dad, this is God. And yet God allows them to respond to him because he's wooing them in a very real way into relationship. Don't get this wrong. He wants to be in relationship with them, but God is not confused by who the authority is. He isn't confused by where the power lies. But up to 2.17, what happens now is God's sick of it because they don't understand who the authority is. They certainly don't recognize where the power lies. And so God says in 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. And then they do it again. How have we wearied you? He goes, oh, you want to know? Here we go. He says, here's the reality. You're looking at evil. You're calling it good. And you're not just calling it good. You're looking at those who are doing evil and saying, God is good with it and he delights in you. Now, folks, that's a problem. That's a serious problem that when we look at something that God calls evil and we call it good and then we look at the people who are doing the evil and we say, God's pleased with you. Again, I don't want to use too many parent illustrations, but I'm telling you right now, if I walked home and my daughter was on the roof, which she very well could be, <laughs> about to jump into our pool from a high roof, and my sons were like, do it. And she's like, but what will mom and dad think? And I'm walking out and I hear my boys go, they'll love it. I'd be angry with her and the boys, specifically with the boys, because I would say, you're about to destroy your sister. Like if she hits the concrete, her legs could be utterly shattered. And who gives you the right to say what you think would please me when it's totally the opposite of what would actually please me? Remember, this is a love letter and God in his rawest form is shaking Israel going, who do you think you are to call evil good and good evil? And to say, I delight in that, when in fact, I hate that because I love the people who are practicing that evil. And when you practice evil, it leads you into darkness, and darkness leads you into death. And it never just leads you into death, it leads all of those who are around you into death. 
He says, that's what wearies me, is that you keep arrogantly placing yourself in the position of authority and saying you get to define what right is. And you're not even right in and of yourself. You're not righteous. And then he says, here's the other issue, that you will come up now and say, where is the God of justice? You're going to put God on the stand when in fact... The only person that gets put on the stand and revealed is you. You want to be the one to define love and to define justice, and yet you're not loving and you're not just. Then he says this word in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, any time in the Bible you see the word behold come up, don't just go, behold, and move on. Because behold it means look, but it's not even just saying look. I'm going to send a messenger. It's like, look! Right? So he's sitting, get the context. He's sitting there going, I'm so sick and tired of your arrogance, of your dripping with pride, thinking you can define what love is and what justice is, and you setting me up as though you're putting me on trial. Look! Now he begins to move from soft, speaking softly, diplomacy to carrying a big stick. And let me just say this again if you've missed it already. God carries a very big stick. Look, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now there's a little play of, on words because do you remember Malachi means messenger. So in one sense he's saying God will send a messenger, it's me. And as the wisdom book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, I am delivering the word of God and it will wound you. There is a play on words. But the prophets always speak for something in the immediate foreseeable future to them, but also beyond themselves to something they kind of felt and intuited, but they didn't know what it was. And that what they didn't know it was that we now, having the New Testament, know is this messenger is John the Baptist who's preparing the way before. Who's he preparing the way before? Me. Who's writing this? Remember, it's the word of who? God. But John the Baptist was preparing the way for who? Jesus. What's that mean? Just simply, Jesus is God. So prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. Now stop again. This letter is written to Israel, to people who are leveraging the name of God, who are saying they're the people of the Lord, who are coming to worship, even falsely, as we've already read, saying they're seeking him. And he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I, I like that. You know, there's this uh, scene in the book of Revelation, because this, this is New Testament, where Jesus is speaking to the church. And he's speaking to the church as they're worshiping, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone's willing to open the door, I'll come in and dine with them and he with me. Now, you must ask the question, like he's writing to the church, why is Jesus outside the church? Why does he have to knock to get into the building? Here he's saying to Israel, you're going to the temple. I haven't been there, but behold, I'm about to show up. Now, again, remember the word behold. If you stop and you go, wait a minute, behold, he's coming. The Lord who you seek will suddenly come to the temple. 
Now, you got to know for a minute here, it's like, watch out, I'm about to show up. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He is coming. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Jesus was coming. Now, what does that mean for us today? Because Jesus came. Well, Jesus is coming again. And as the Bible teaches this, this is very important for you to understand. The same emotions that should have been conjured up in the nation of Israel when they heard this. Emotions like when God says, suddenly I'm going to show up in the temple. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, have you not been around? Well, when I show up, behold, I'm coming, should make everyone in Israel a little uneasy. This sense of like God's going to arrive. God is going to appear. There's going to be a revelation of God in all of his big stick power and in all of his holiness. God appears. Now, in saying that, they should have gone, oh, wait a minute. Right now, when I say to you, God's coming and he might show up right now. If you understand us as a church, you should shift a little bit. Your hands should get a little bit clammy. If you recognize the reality of your own heart, your hands should get a little bit clammy. Your eyes may want to flutter a bit. This is God, folks. God. God has come and appeared once, but he will come again. The first time he came as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. The second time, the way Revelation pictures the coming of Jesus is that he comes back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth in his robe dipped in blood. I don't know about you, but that image is pretty strong. So when we hear, behold, look, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. The point is, at the moment, they're, they're like, well, how do you define justice? How do you define love? Right now, we live in a time where people are like, you aren't loving. No, you're not loving. You're lying. No, you're lying. You aren't just. No, you're not just. Who gets to answer? Who gets to answer what justice is? Who gets to answer what love is? Well, God says, in my appearing, it will immediately be exposed. God defines the answer to love. This is why St. Augustine made this statement where he talked about rightly ordered loves. And the reason I'm saying this is we live in a culture that when we're challenged about love, we all presume I'm fine, but they're wrong. It's all up to everybody. Just love. Many of us might be saying we're loving somebody when in fact we're calling evil good and good evil. We may say, oh, God's fine with it. We delights in you. When in fact, we might be under the judgment of God. And in fact, I know truly we are in a very real way because Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is presently being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth, which is exactly what Israel was doing and which is what in too many cases we are and I am doing as well. So he says, behold, God's going to be the one to put us on, all on trial. 
So now <clears throat> he moves on. The Lord will come suddenly to his temple, the messenger of covenant, whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, chapter 3. Behold, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? God carries a really big stick. He's really loving. And when he appears, God's saying through the lips of Malachi, um... You're not ready for this. The whole of the New Testament, when it speaks about judgment, is saying to us right now, um, you're not ready for this. When we speak about the holiness of God and the power of God, far too many of us, including myself, are way too comfortable. There is no, as will be mentioned at the end of this, fear of God. In fact, many of us will go fear of God. Like, that's such a weird term. It means respect in honor, a recognition that God's God and we are not, a recognition of the heat of his holiness, a recognition that his power, when it appears in any level, you can't endure it. You won't be able to stand on your feet. I said a couple weeks ago, when angels show up in the Bible, people fall to their face and they go, get up, I'm not worthy to bow down to. But there is one. When he comes and when he appears, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God's weight is massive. It's unparalleled. His holiness is hot. His stick is huge. That's why Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. There is a moment in the Bible called the judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle says, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So all may receive what is due, what you've done in your body, your life, whether good or evil. The Bible says that when God appears, his judgment appears, and when he appears, even the words we spoke, we will give an account for every word that came out of our mouths. That the heat of his holiness is so exposing, like a refiner exposing all of the impurities, like Jed talked about. Fuller's soap was the men who had to go to the fuller's field and they would wash sheep skin and wool and it stunk. And it was so horrible that they picked a field out there so people didn't have to smell it and didn't have to see it. And he says the fuller soap, this soap, which is so strong, which will expose our stench. Stench that could never be covered just by deodorant or cologne or perfume. But a stench so deep because it goes inside the depths of every one of our hearts. And he goes, when God shows up, though he's like a refiner, and fuller soap. He's cleansing those who love God and are called according to his purpose. These people that have faith and have put their trust in God as the only means to being saved from sin, 
This same Paul that spoke in 2 Corinthians spoke in the book of Romans and he said God works all things together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He works everything together for good and he uses all of the awful things, all of the really hard things in your life for good. And you say, well, what's the good? Well, Romans 8, 29, the next verse said he has predestined those who love God and are called according to his purpose to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. The heat of God's holiness is coming and will expose you are not the authority God is. You don't get a defined love. You don't get a defined justice. God does. And he says, when God does the work of his purification and the judgment, and I have to stop here. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. But in the judgment, which the Bible, Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Let me just stop and say this real quick. Hebrews chapter 9. For it is appointed, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There's been a ton of talk these last couple weeks and rightfully so about the death, the sudden death of Kobe Bryant. And God so sides with those who weep. God weeps with those who weep. God sits over tombs and his tears are shed because death is the product of sin. Death is the final enemy to be defeated and God weeps over death. But the Bible and God says other interesting things about death. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of praise. So it's better to go to a funeral than to a party because at a funeral, the living take it to heart. The living recognize every one of us is going to die. And in that moment where you recognize that you're going to die, all will die and it's appointed for us to die and then the judgment. To be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord and the presence and the fierceness of the holiness of God in his big stick exposes us. It exposes us. So this reality of God's working, of when he comes, he comes now as a refiner and as a purifier. And it says, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. So just a couple weeks ago, we saw that God was going after the sons of Levi, which is the priests, the leaders, and saying, you guys aren't even living like leaders. You're not even acting like priests. But he says, in my purification, my purification wins. My purpose will stand. The sons of Levi will be refined. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness. The purification of God will bring about righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of the masses, Judah and Jerusalem, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. What brought about the refining power? The presence of God. The presence of God exposes us and refines us. What does that moment actually look like? This moment of, of judgment. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Folks, this means at the judgment, God doesn't stand here when you're over there and judge you. All of the power, the big stick of God's nature, the heat of his holiness is up close and personal. I will draw near to you. 
before judgment. There are these moments in these passages I love, like draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't just give you rest by just giving you rest. He gives you rest by refining you, by purifying you, by exposing our sin. He will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. He doesn't need to like sift it out like, hmm, was that good or was that bad? Was that word pure or impure? It's you're in the presence of pureness, holiness, and you know, and he knows. It's swift witness. You're like, exposed. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. When the fear of God is present, there is a comprehensive understanding of love, righteousness, and judgment. When it's just up to us, at best, there's an incomplete, shrunken view of love, righteousness, and justice. And I love this picture, if you go back one slide, because he exposes everybody in modern culture. He says, I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And we go, sorcerers, witchcraft, like, does that really exist anymore? Just think about it this way. Those who seek power outside of the one true God. And they do it for multiple different reasons. They do it because of anxiety and depression, because of bad marriages, because of help and finances, because they want to make it to the top. And yet God is the maker and the sustainer of all things, including us. That's sorcery. Against the adulterers, here he speaks about sexual immorality. And he speaks about it in his word of all kinds. What's so interesting about this section where he talks about being a swift witness against is in our modern culture, if you just think on the paradigm that so many people talk in, the right-left spectrum, the first few of these statements, all the people traditionally on the right would go, yes, that's what God's going to do. He's going to expose those people who don't profess the name of God, those people who don't pray in schools. He's going to expose those who are seeking power outside of it being in God. He's going to expose the sexually immoral. And right now you're like, and it's in your ranks, right? And you're being exposed. But he's, we got that. Against the homosexuals, against the idolaters, he's going to expose all that and everybody cheers. Against those who swear falsely because we stand for truth and yet maybe not so much anymore. Depends on ultimately what we want and we like all of that. But then he gets into this whole section where now the people on the left are like, I love that. He's oppressing the hired worker, his wages. People aren't being paid enough. We aren't giving just wages and they're defining justice. And then he moves on specifically and he says, the widow and the fatherless, we're not caring about those people. And against those who thrust aside the sojourner. You want to know what the word sojourner means? Immigrant. What I love about this is it's the same thing Paul does in the book of Romans. He talks to the Jews and then he talks to the Gentiles and he goes, you're all under sin. Under the exposure of the presence of God, you're all sinners. Because God loves people. He hates sorcery because he knows he's power and he wants you and me to receive real power from the real God. 
He hates adultery because he's a covenant God of love who wants people protected in a committed relationship, who recognize not using his name to do evil. That's last week. He cares about truth because God is truth. And he knows falsity leads to darkness and darkness ultimately leads to death and ruins people's lives and ruins the world. He cares about people being paid a just wage because he's made us like himself as workers who need to be provided for and should reap what we've sown in a positive manner. He cares about the widow and the fatherless because they're void of power and he wants the people of God to come alongside of them. He cares about the unborn and he cares about the immigrant. He cares that people don't do physical terrorism and he cares about racism because racism social terrorism. The beauty of God is that he exposes in his presence all of our sin and doesn't allow us to go, they're the wrong ones. He goes, Take those fingers and point them right back at yourself. And he will purify his people. Praise be to God. When you sit here and you're exposed and you go, God, what should we do? There's this scene I've mentioned here before, but I want to just take the last few minutes and slow down to look at this scene of Jesus when he stands over Jerusalem and he's weeping. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is standing over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Now realize this, this Jerusalem, who's the one that says they're representing God, when God sends a truth teller, when God sends someone to refine them, they killed them. Don't presume they would do it and you wouldn't. If God sent truth tellers to us right now would you even like them if God sent truth tellers that were revealing the very character of God would we even like them let alone receive them he says you killed them and you threw stones at those who were sent to it and he says how often would I have gathered children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you weren't welling here's the picture the picture is a hen in a burning down barn Image, the heat of God's holiness coming along the world in which everything will be exposed. And the hen is screaming as the burn's burning down to the chicks, come, come. And all the chicks that come, the hen covers with its wings. And real documented stories say when they walked into a burned down barn, all the chicks who didn't come were charred and blackened and fried. And then you start a charred, blackened, fried hen. But underneath the black, charred wings were the chips the, of living chicks. The chirps of living chicks. And Jesus is using that image saying, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. Is a hen gathers her brood, her chicks, but you were not willing. Folks, this is ultimately a question of authority. We don't have the authority to save or straighten ourselves. Jesus does. We don't have a stick big enough to do that. God does. And if by faith you come to him, whether right now you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, if you come to him, he straightens our crooked sticks. It's hard and it's not always fun. 
but in his love, he straightens us. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy to us. God, come upon us now and let your spirit speak. In Christ's name, amen.